Well, there are some songs we sing that I wish would never end. That's one of them. Tremendous, tremendous truth. Take your Bibles and turn to John 12. John chapter 12. Tempted in light of that song to change my text to Revelation 21 and 22, but I ought not. That would not go well for us because I'm not prepared for that, so it would be three hours instead of 50 minutes. John 12. We come to a text which will always hold a unique and special place in my heart. This first text I ever preached here at Newton Bible Church in April of 2011. The elders invited me to come and meet the church family and investigate whether or not this would be a good fit for us and us for you. It was Palm Sunday. I said to the elders, I don't want to come give you a sugar stick sermon that I have well crafted, so give me a text that you want me to preach on. It being Palm Sunday, they said, pick one of the four gospel records of the triumphal entry of Christ and preach on that while you're here. This is an event recorded in all four gospel records, which lets you know that it is of increased significance in the telling of Jesus' life and mission. It holds a unique place in my heart, but it holds a greater place, I believe, in the purposes and revelation of God. Of the four gospels, John 12 communicates to us something unique about the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. I love how in John's presentation of what we call the triumphal entry, he gives it to us with so much irony. So many twists and turns. I don't mean sarcasm and humor. I mean things look one way. They're presented in one way, but as you continue reading in John's gospel, you see that it actually was something else. It actually was quite ironic. All that irony in John's presentation of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is for the purpose of showing you the glory of Jesus. That he is the Son of God, the promised one of the Old Testament, and that you should believe in him. And that by believing in him, you can have life, eternal life in his name. Each of the four gospel writers have their own unique emphasis as they tell the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Matthew in Matthew chapter 21 is intent on showing us how Jesus presents himself as the Jews' king in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So if you read that, that's what you would see the emphasis being. Mark in Mark chapter 11 is intent on showing us the, the entry of Jesus as preparation for giving his life as a ransom for many, as the servant of all. In Luke chapter 19, Luke tells us about the the entry of Jesus with a special focus on the reaction of others to these events, and in particular, the reaction of Jesus to what happened. And so he tells us immediately after the telling of Jesus coming in is that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He was caught, Jesus was caught with the reality of their unbelief, and he wept over the city. That's Luke's emphasis. As we come to John's gospel, he has his own special emphasis telling us about this unmatched day in the life and ministry of Jesus. And he has this unique eye to the people who are involved in this entrance and how they are thinking and why they're thinking that and how they react to what happens to Jesus coming in, riding on a young donkey. So John tells us about the crowd and why they came out to Jesus to hail him as king. He tells us about the the chief priests and why they responded with 
wicked hatred and anger towards Lazarus, seeking to put him to death. He tells us about the disciples and how they didn't understand a lick of what was going on. Took part in it and didn't comprehend what was happening. He also tells us about Jesus, who carefully kept every word of prophecy as he made the case clear and obvious that he was the Prince of Peace. John focuses on these. We see this unique irony attached to each one of those. I hope you can see those ironies as we work our way through the text. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. John 12, verse 9 says this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to, de- Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the other crowd from Jerusalem went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign from the crowd who had been at Bethany. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. May God take the preaching of his word and mold our hearts to his so we love what he loves and hate what he hates and have the hope that faith in him alone can bring. As you know, the month of June has been taken captive by the sexually deviant deviant in our culture. It has become a a month in which they express their pride as they encourage and even demand that all forms of, of sexual expression that especially are contrary to God's design and God's revelation ought no longer be put away behind closed doors. They now ought be brought out into common knowledge and celebrated among common culture. They have themselves peddled and partnered with major corporations and media conglomerates and even sports organizations who now trumpet the message of pride for the LGBTQ plus movement. They use their major platforms of influence to make you think that you must celebrate, rejoice in, and Be delighted in people who now are free from the sexual ethic of God's holy word. Even my most beloved hockey team makes Pride Month the the forward of their website and their webpage and their Facebook page. Major corporations put out new logos with gay pride brightly and proudly displayed. Major cities have displayed this flag, not just on one on one street, but whole streets lined with this flag. Social media platforms ban speech that calls into question the science or the morality of the whole narrative. It's gotten so bad that our society now is dominated by politicians defending and supporting something 
so terrible as small children being exposed to the deviancy and demonic behavior as something like a drag queen show in places that used to be family friendly, like a library. Now we can no longer call that into question, no longer say that's wicked and evil. Now we, from the highest office in our land, must celebrate this, rejoice in it, and defend it. The parades for Pride Month are widely covered by the news media as everyone has this agenda of celebration and acceptance pushed upon us. I've told you before, I had growing up a great uncle who was a homosexual. I did not know that until I was in high school. But he had lived a homosexual lifestyle since the 60s. And I, now looking back, remember moments in my childhood when I was gathered in my grandparents' living room in which we just happened to have the TV on of the news of the day, you know, Thanksgiving Day, watching the parade or whatever, watching the news later in the day. And my grandparents would quickly turn the TV off. I realized now what they were doing was protecting me from the news segment about the gay pride parade that was happening in downtown Minneapolis, of which my great uncle was a part. They were harboring me from that influence. Well, anymore as parents, it's almost impossible to harbor your kids. Certainly we protect them and provide safety for them, but they are inundated on every front with this reality. But then, near the end of Pride Month, on a day that will live in great esteem in human history, June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court of our land put out a ruling completely turning the tables on our culture. In a divinely appointed moment of God's mercy upon our land, the celebration of rebellion against God was overruled and overturned by a human court. How ironic. How divinely funny that in Pride Month, now we have the biggest victory for pre-born life in the last 49 years. I bring that up to lay the groundwork for the kind of irony we see in John 12. God is a God who is ironic in his use of evil in how he functions in the world and dominates in his sovereignty, he takes the evil machinations and plans of men and uses them ironically to accomplish his perfect and eternally wise plan. As we see the irony in the narrative of John 12, we will see the resulting glory of Jesus and ultimately of God the Father. As he has proven, Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. We'll see that he's intent on a greater glory than the cheers of the crowd. He's intent on the glorification that awaits him at the cross. We see that his face is set like a flint to head to Calvary's mountain. We see this irony first in the popularity of Jesus. As we come to John 12, we see a popularity that, are, that is off the charts. Ratings that cannot be calculated. John tells us in verse 9 that the crowd came out of Jerusalem to Bethany on Saturday night to see Jesus. We saw that last week that Simon the leper had thrown a party for Jesus on Saturday night at the end of the Sabbath. And many Jews, John says, made the trek, that two-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethany to come see Jesus, and not just Jesus, but to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised. That popularity, John tells us in our text, carried over to the next day. Jerusalem is abuzz with this Jesus of Nazareth who raised Lazarus. He's here for the Passover, and he's coming to the city tomorrow. 
And so when Jesus starts on his journey on his young donkey from Bethany to Jerusalem, this large crowd gathers to welcome him. And what a welcoming party it was, a popularity fest. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that of the crowd that was present, they are there because they heard the testimony about Lazarus. He uses a a verb to let it be known that the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus in, in Bethany six to eight weeks before couldn't stop talking about it. They couldn't shut their mouths. They kept witnessing about it. Every time they got the chance, they talked about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so now you've got Jerusalem inundated with all these pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish people coming to celebrate Passover. And every time these people from Bethany meet a new Jew from a new place, they have to say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Did you hear what he did six weeks ago? I was there. Let me tell you the story. John tells us that that greased the slide for the crowd to come and stand before Jesus on this Sunday and hail him as king, to rejoice in him as their would-be Messiah. John tells us that as they came, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And as he came into Jerusalem, he was hailed by their shouts of acclamation and praise. These words that they proclaimed to him are words from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 being a psalm that they would have been taught in the synagogues in their earliest days. It's a psalm of among the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. They're songs of praise and, and of expectation for God to overthrow and rule over their enemies. John tells us that as they see the Messiah coming, they see Jesus coming, they are gripped with the reality of he deserves our praise. And so they've been told from the earliest days of their childhood, if you happen to be present on the day when the Messiah enters Jerusalem, have these words on your lips. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew It simply means, save us, we pray, or save us, O Lord. In the minds of the Jew, it's a term of of pleading for salvation, but more than that, it's a a term of, of victory, of rejoicing, of a salvation that is sure, that is settled and complete, that this king will surely do. It's a word that not many other Jewish people heard, said to them. Sure, there were false messiahs in Jewish history. I'm sure some of the crowds spoke this word to them from Psalm 118. But it was not a word, it was not a statement that the common Jew threw around to anyone. They were convinced something was unique about this man. His popularity was through the roof. Not only did they hail him as king, but they also waved palm branches or palm fronds at him. There's nothing in the Old Testament that kind of lays the groundwork for that. There's there's no command in the Old Testament to take up palm branches and rejoice in the entrance of the king. The closest you get is at the Feast of Tabernacles when they're to use palm branches and other branches to, to celebrate, to make their booze, and then to use those to celebrate in the temple. But the palm branch by first century Judaism had become a, a national symbol of victory. It had become a declaration in symbolic form that we will win. You've heard certainly of the Maccabean revolt. One in particular, one man in particular was 
the tip of the spear of that revolt. His name was Judas. Judas of the Maccabean family led Israel, led the Jews against the Syrians and forced them out of Jerusalem in almost miraculous ways. And you know what happened after he did that to celebrate his victory? They took palm branches and they waved and lauded him as a great conqueror. It was a sign of victory. Looking forward from Jesus' time to when the Romans would come against Jerusalem in the revolt of the Jews against Rome in 67 to 70 AD, the, the revolt that ended in the mass destruction of Jerusalem and of the Jews. They minted their own coins. The Jews did in their revolt. Their own form of economy they, they used. And you know what they had on their coins? What they minted on their coins? A palm branch. It was a sign of, of victory. It was a call to war. It was a declaration of he is our warrior king. And not only that, but they say to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's not in Psalm 118. They're importing that from other prophetic texts. They're making clear who they believe this Jesus to be. Now you know, I've told you this before, they expect him, the Messiah, to come and and give physical, political, military victory. They expect him to come in as the Messiah and raise up a militia and fight the Romans and send them home with their tail between their legs and establish the Jerusalem-Israel rule in Jerusalem on the throne of David and rule over all the nations of the world. It's a right expectation, wrongly placed. It's a right expectation. Scripture is clear that's happening. But they didn't understand that the first coming of the Messiah was to come and suffer to come and give his life as the prince of peace, not to rule and reign as king over Israel and the nations of the world. Friend, there's not a moment in Jesus' life or ministry where he is more popular than what you see in John 12. There's not a moment when the crowd is, is more convinced that he is their Messiah. And here, I believe, is the irony. Their opinion of Jesus, their desires and plans for Jesus are what he uses to carry out his own plans. They plan for him to overthrow Rome. He plans to use their popularity to get him to the cross. He plans to use their popularity as a cover from the rulers so that they don't kill him right then and right there. But he also plans to use his popularity to provoke their hatred of him so that by Friday they will cry out, crucify him, crucify him. You see, rather than Jesus being moved off course in John 12, he is furthered down his path. Remember how at the end of chapter 11, we were told by John that the chief priest had an arrest warrant out for Jesus. If anyone saw him, turn him in. Friend, look at the scene in John 12. Everyone sees him and no one's turning him in. He uses his popularity to cover himself from their murderous plans. He's no longer in hiding he has come to proclaim himself as Messiah, King. Mark describes this well in Mark 14, verses 1 and 2. He says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Jesus is using that to his advantage in an ironic way 
to accomplish his purpose and his plan. You see, the Pharisees, the chief priests, are caught. They're afraid that if Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he'll start an insurrection. His power and influence will cause the Romans to come and snuff out their nation and their people and their place. But because of how Jesus handles this whole entry into Jerusalem thing, now they're also worried about arresting him and killing him in front of the crowd because he's so wildly popular. So he puts them in a lose-lose situation. They cannot win. Only Jesus can win here. Their hands are tied by the glorious wisdom of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. He's not moved by the fickle applause of the crowd, but he doesn't waste it either. I also want you to see the, pop, the irony of the presentation. The presentation. Jesus comes in as the king of Israel. This is his official offer as the Messiah to the Jewish people. He is offering himself to rule over them as their king. He's revealed his power to them, power that is obviously able to overthrow Rome. He can raise a man from the dead four days in the tomb. He can overthrow Rome. It's obvious and clear. They seem to be excitedly rejoicing in in Jesus as their king here. This, by the way, is the most messianic that Jesus has ever acted in his ministry. You say, well, I thought he's been doing that all along. Well, he's been showing bits and pieces that he is the Messiah. He's been proving by his signs and wonders that he is the Son of God. But often, you remember, he would say to someone after he healed them, now go home and don't tell anyone. Because he was leading to this point. But for the last five weeks or so, he has been acting more messianically than he ever has in his ministry prior. I told you, he went to Ephraim to hide out from the Pharisees after he raised Lazarus from the dead. He then went up through Samaria, crossed over the Jordan River, and caught up with a band of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, who were coming down the Jordan River Valley to come to Passover. As he walked with them, he acted in ways that were so very messianic to them. He clearly proclaimed to them that there is a condition in the hearts of men that will be true when the Son of Man comes. He starts talking about the coming of the Son of Man. He speaks in parables that look forward to the kingdom of God on earth, and he talks about how men should be ready for that. So he speaks about the talents that are given to different servants and what they do with those talents. Remember that parable? That parable, among other things, is meant to communicate the kingdom is not going to come immediately. The king's going to give out talents and leave and come back. He is intending for them to understand what he will do as king. On this journey down the Jordan River Valley with the pilgrims heading to Jerusalem, he spoke in authority on controversial issues. This, it's on this journey that we read in Matthew 19 that he addressed the issue of divorce, which was a lightning rod issue in Jewish culture, much like today, in which the Pharisees had taken their stand and had, in his opinion, clearly stated from Scripture, gone against God's will. He was brave and clear and authoritative in his teaching. He confronted the rich young ruler on his journey about the idolatry of riches, and then he entered in to Jericho, and he sought after Zacchaeus, who was caught by his riches, and said to Zacchaeus, I am going to your house today. Calling him to repentance and faith, he rescued Zacchaeus from the God of money and made him a true worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Along this journey, he performed great miracles like the healing of the ten lepers, of which only one returned to give thanks, and the healing of blind Bartimaeus and his friend in the city of Jericho. In other words, what you read in John 12 is the culmination of all that. All that's been building up to this moment. The testimony of Jesus as Messiah has been obvious and clear more so than ever before. And now here he is entering to the shouts of victory into the capital city of his people being hailed as the king of Israel. Here's the irony. Even though he's hailed as king, even though he receives their praise, he does not bow to their will. He, being their Messiah, will be their Messiah whether they receive him on his terms or not. This is what he's here offering himself as, their Messiah on his terms. What they want as the Jewish people is their Messiah on their terms. And Jesus says, no, I will not be your Messiah on your terms. And we know that specifically by how he handles the situation. But he makes clear that his reign as king over his people will be of a different nature than they think it will be. And it will have a different objective than they are planning for it and imagining it to have. In fact, in the next two days, Monday and Tuesday of his Passion Week, he will go and rule in the temple. He will take up shop in the temple. He will establish himself as the king of Israel in the place of worship in the heart of Israel. And he will face every challenger who comes to him and says to him, what about this and what about that? And tries to catch him to prove that he cannot be the Messiah. He's unjust, ungodly, and doesn't tell the truth. And he stands there in the temple and he faces every challenge and he speaks truth clearly and he makes known to them what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he will have. And by the end of Tuesday night, they don't want that king or that kingdom. He effectively exposes their flippant faith. He makes known the false righteousness of the religious elite. And by Friday morning, led by the chief priests, they with the crowd will cry out, crucify him, crucify him. What they rejoiced over on Sunday, they will call for the destruction of on Friday. You might think this is lost on Jesus. That somehow he's caught up in their murderous intent and is surprised by how Monday and Tuesday go. But you must know that he obviously knew this was coming. He knew their hearts. By the end of chapter 12, he will dissect their hearts to such a level that John will tell us he went back into hiding because of the crowd's unbelief. But that's not the only way we know. We also know because of how he comes in. The mode of transportation he uses to come in as king lets you know he knows what's going on here. He does not come in on a white steed, a white horse, which you would expect for a a victorious or a conquering king. No king heading into battle to overthrow an empire that dominated the world would come in riding, not just on a donkey, but a donkey never ridden before, a donkey so young that it had never been ridden before. A donkey's colt, a young donkey. It's the most humble and serviceable of animals. It's the common man's animal. 
It's what most Jews would own to do their field work with. It was a, a beast of burden. It was a beast you would use to accomplish your most menial of tasks. There was no glory or honor in being a donkey. You were just normal, common, ordinary, and humble. And so Jesus mounts this young donkey, never before ridden, and enters Jerusalem not as conquering king of Israel, but as prince of peace. He has come as the son of God sent from heaven to give his life as a sacrifice to make peace possible between God's people and the God they say they serve. This is the irony of the presentation. See also the irony of the power. The popularity of Jesus in the presentation as king of Israel puts him in a position of great power. He holds the crowd in his hand. He can, he can pull the strings however he wants in this moment. He can do whatever it is he wants to do with them. They are at his beck and call. They are declaring him to be king. They are shouting to him, Hosanna. They are waving palm branches in his face. Lazarus stands beside him as a living witness to his authority over the grave. The crowd is fascinated with him. And now he has power over them. The Pharisees even pick this up, don't they? In verse 19, they say, look, we've lost all hope. The world has gone after him. Matthew tells us in his account of this that the whole city was stirred up by this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. This was not a small group of pilgrims of 20, 30, 40 people who moved with Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem. This was a, a massive gathering of hundreds, if not thousands of people declaring his praise, saying to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The whole city is astir, either saying it or wondering what is going on with this man. This power of Jesus is not the only power in the text, is it? We see other powers at work here. The powers of the chief priests, namely, in verses 10 through 11. They seek to use their power to make plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And they can't have that. They can't be outdone by Jesus' power. So they flex the muscle of their own political authority seeking to stop the bleeding of Jesus' popularity, get this thing back in reign and in control by putting to death the man Jesus raised from the dead. Oh, the irony. As if he can't go then to his grave again and say, Lazarus, come forth. So the key phrase in verse 10 is, as well. They had already made plans at the end of chapter 11 to put Jesus to death when Caiaphas said, it's better that one man, namely Jesus, die for the nation than that the whole nation die at the hands of the Romans. And so we see in John 12 and verse 10 and 11 that evil multiplies. The evil plans of wicked men in places of power always multiplies. It never diminishes. It never gets less. Making evil plans to accomplish evil purposes for their own evil glory, never requires less of them. It always requires more of them. And we see that in our culture, don't we? 
What, what started 50 years ago is an aberrant thought of killing babies in the womb, one which our current president himself said he was against in 1973. Now has become that which we celebrate and rejoice in and, and have to as a culture say is a right for women to do because evil multiplies. And, and now it's no longer a Supreme Court decision that we decided to be okay with and then once it gets overturned, now we can decide to be okay with that Supreme Court ruling. No, now we have to burn down the Supreme Court and disband these people and make new laws. You see how evil multiplies? That's what it does. The rejection of God spurns out of evil hearts all kinds of new plans for wickedness. Lazarus had done nothing wrong but obey the voice of Jesus, which he didn't have a choice but to do. And now he must die because their political agenda is more important than one man's life. But here's the irony of the power play in the text. These chief priests think they have the power to kill and destroy to accomplish their own agenda, but in reality, they're only going to accomplish that which is according to God's agenda. That's the beauty of Scripture and the revelation of God's work, even in uh, the context of evil plans of wicked men. Their political power is no match for God's sovereign authority. They can plot and plan all they want, but only what serves God's purposes will be allowed. And they will be held accountable for their evil uses of power. That's a major part of what's going on in John 12. Jesus is directing these circumstances to provoke their hatred of him. His bright display of his glory in this triumphal entry provokes them even more to say he must die and Lazarus must die. Jesus is accomplishing that which he said in John 10. No man takes my life from me, but as a good shepherd of the sheep, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, Jesus said. And so here he uses the power of political entities to accomplish that purpose. Lastly, I want you to see the irony of prophecy. The irony of prophecy. This entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was so carefully detailed out by the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets spoke of the moment and the manner and the meaning of this entry. And they did it all 500 years before it happened declaring how, when, and why it would happen. Two of those prophecies are referenced here in John 12. The first is found coming out of the mouths of the crowd in verse 13. They sing and shout the lines they had learned from Psalm 118. And then those lines prophesied of, of this very moment, as we will see. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, if your neighbor's sleeping, wake him up. Have them turn back to Psalm 118, middle of your Bible, right before the longest chapter in Scripture, Psalm 119. Psalm 118, I want to show you the prophecy of God's Word declaring the glory of Christ and His coming into Jerusalem. Psalm 118 is all about the steadfast love of the Lord enduring forever. You see that as maybe the title in your copy of the Scriptures over the psalm. As you work your way through the text, you see that this love of God will be guaranteed and secured through the sending of his son to his people. We read of that specifically in verse 22 where it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's Hosanna. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The psalmist is here pointing ahead to a coming day, a specific day, on which a specific incident will happen. Well, what is that day? It's the day when the builders will reject a stone they don't like. That God, in his ironic use of their power and their rejection, will turn to use for his own purposes. He'll take that stone they rejected and he'll make it the chief cornerstone. Well, who are these builders? Well, they're the rulers and the officials of Israel. Specifically, they're the religious leaders who have authority over God's temple and therefore over God's people. Well, what's the day being described? Well, it's the day of this stone's entrance into the city. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And how will we be glad in it? We will declare, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The psalmist is proclaiming a day in which their king will come. Will be lauded by the masses as the king. But will on that same day be rejected by those who have authority. And will be cast aside. And in being cast aside in a great reversal, that who was rejected will become that which is chief. You know this to be Jesus. Now turn with me to Daniel 9. Daniel chapter 9, the prophet Daniel, later on in your Old Testament after the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is a prophet who is prophesying on behalf of God to the people of God in captivity, in Babylon specifically. He, in chapter 9, is praying before the Lord and begging the Lord for mercy. He's confessing the sins of his people. He's admitting that they deserve this exile, but he's begging God to intervene, to come and stop the oppression of evil over them. And as he prays before the Lord, the angel Gabriel is stopped and whatever else he was doing, and he is sent to Daniel because in verse 23, he says, Daniel, you are greatly loved. You've been heard in heaven. Now hear the message of God. He gives them a vision a prophecy in verse 24 down through verse 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. From heaven Daniel receives this vision. 
declaring to him that there's a time period coming of 70 weeks. We learn later in Daniel that those weeks are periods of 70 years. So these are 70 periods of 70 years, 490 years total. And he tells them, he tells Daniel that after 69 weeks, 62 and 7 together, as he said in verse 25, that then an anointed one will be cut off in verse 26. So 69 weeks, seven-year period, 69 times 7 is 483 years. He says that the beginning of that clock starts when the decree goes out for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We know the rebuilding of Jerusalem to be decreed by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. Depending on where you date that, you come out at different dates, where you date the the decree of Artaxerxes. But if you find it uh, in, in 444 B.C., which I believe it is, Guess what day you come out at in human history? The Sunday of the Passion Week of Jesus. Nisan 10, A.D. 33. So the stone the builders rejected in Psalm 118 is now the stone that is cut off in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9 after a 483-year period. Now turn with me to Zechariah 9. Zechariah, the second to last book in your Old Testament. I know some of you haven't been in these books for quite a while So let me take you there, Zechariah 9. They're worthy of your consideration, especially as they point forward to Christ. That was a joke. I was joking with you about not being in these books for a while. I wasn't chiding you. Unless it's true, then I'm chiding you. Zechariah 9. Psalm 118 gave us the meaning of this entry, that it would be the expression of God's steadfast love to his people even though the leaders and the majority of the people would reject it. Daniel 9 gave us the moment, the time of that entry at the end of 483 years from the decree. And in Zechariah 9, we're given the manner of this entry. Starting in verse 9 of Zechariah 9, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. John only quotes part of that in John 12, but he links in his recounting of this to Zechariah's whole prophecy, the totality of the passage. And he's letting us know that Jesus is coming in this manner on purpose, riding a young donkey that is in keeping with a prophet who spoke over 500 years before. So back in John 12, this event that was so crucial in the mind and the plan of God that for 500 years he had spoken, 500 years prior, he had spoken through prophets about the manner the moment, and the meaning of this day and this event. And here in John 12, we see it all come together in perfect harmony. Jesus perfectly capable and concerned to fulfill every line of the prophet's pen. That every jot and tittle of Old Testament prophetic voices would be perfectly fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And yet here's the irony. 
the disciples missed it. The disciples didn't get it. John says that they, they didn't understand what all was going on. God had been so clear, spoken over 500 years before, let them know the meaning and the manner and the moment of this coming of Jesus into Jerusalem as the king of Israel, and they missed it. John says that it wasn't until after Jesus was glorified that it all came together for them. He says that in verse 16. After Jesus was glorified, it all came together for them. It's kind of an odd statement in this text, isn't it? There's not been another moment in John's gospel where Jesus has been more glorified up to this point, right? He's not had more popularity than this moment. He has not received the praises of the crowd like he has in this moment before. But Jesus is looking past the praises of a fickle crowd. His mind and his heart is set on a greater glory. It wasn't this moment of his entry that was his great glory. It was the moment of Calvary's cross that was his greatest glory. He comes in in humiliation on a young donkey as a foreshadowing of his greater humiliation, a wooden cross. In a few short days, he will ride a wooden cross for the final moments of his life here on earth to give his life as a sacrifice for many. You see, his greatest glory is not seen in this moment in the cheers of the crowd, but it's seen in the darkest moments of humiliating self-sacrifice. His greatest glory was seen when everyone else abandoned him. His greatest glory was seen when men were mocking him, spitting at him, calling him names because of his grotesque appearance as he died on an execution stake. His greatest glory was seen as he cried out upon that cross to Telestai, it is finished. My work is complete. The debt is paid in full. His greatest glory was seen in his coming as the Prince of Peace. Amen. Beloved, he can only be the King of Glory, declared to be so in Psalm 24 seen to be so in Revelation 21 and 22 because he came as the Prince of Peace riding on a young donkey to make peace for you and me through the blood of his cross. Hallelujah. What a Savior. As we close, I must drive this home to your heart. Friend, maybe you're here today and you say, I am a lot like that crowd. I want a God of my own making and of my own choosing. I want a king over my life that is submitted to my will, not me to his. See in Christ an offer to be freed from that. There's nothing but death in that rebellion against God. There is eternal life in coming to Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you so that you can be his servant and slave captured by his grace. Come to him today. Second, can I point you to the veracity of God's prophetic word? The clarity and the truthfulness of what God has said, as proven in John 12. That he meant what he said 500 years before to its very detail. Zechariah 9 and Daniel 9 and Psalm 118 could easily be spiritualized or allegorized. 
We could easily take the, the statement about him coming in on a young donkey and, and make that be about his humility of his incarnation. But the prophet meant it as God gave it to be literal. That he would come in on a young donkey. You could easily read Daniel 9 and say, well, that's, those, are, those periods of years are, are meant spiritually. And, and there's, there's gaps here and make that something other than what it clearly is. John 12 lets you know that Daniel from God meant 483 years from the moment of the decree to rebuild Israel to the cutting off of the Messiah. So as you wrestle through the prophetic text of Scripture, as you try to figure out the word of God and what he will do in the days to come, and it will take wrestling. These are not easy texts. These are the meat of the word that require much study and thought. As you do, can I encourage you? Nay, can I exhort you? Can I tell you it behooves you to follow the pattern of interpretation seen in John 12? This is what J.C. Ryle said about this text. Such fulfillments of prophecy as this deserve the special attention of all who love the Bible and read it with reverence. They show us that every word of Holy Scripture was given by inspiration of God. They teach us to beware of the mischievous practice of spiritualizing and explaining away the language of Scripture. We must settle in our minds that the plain, literal meaning of the Bible is the true and correct meaning. This is the prediction of Zechariah fulfilled in John 12. Lastly, let me exhort you to follow our Lord here. He will himself tell us this next week when he interprets his own entry into Jerusalem. We'll see that in John 12. But he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Beloved, do you want to share in the glory and honor of Christ? If you're a joint heir of Christ in his eternal riches, if you will one day rule and reign with him in his eternal majesty, then you must suffer with him. You must follow him on this path. You don't come into this world to rule and reign and conquer and divide. You come to serve. You come as a grain of wheat to fall into the ground and to die. And by dying to produce much fruit to the glory of Christ. So believer, are you in the ground, dead, submissive and and completely humbled before the Lord to use you however he sees fit? as his servant. Follow Christ here. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this text and thank you for your son. Thank you for keeping your word and sending him for the salvation of our souls. Help us, Lord, to be servants like our Lord was a servant. Help us to be humbled like he was humble. Help us, Lord, to be useful for your use as he was useful. We love you. Thank you for loving us and making that so clear. Through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.